We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of people. In times of universal deceit, truth is the only rebellion left. On today's show, I will discuss the recent Supreme Court decision, 6-3 majority, to allow parents to use their dollars, their tax dollars, to pay for the school of their choice, and Justice Sotomayor's objection, where she claims that this is a violation of the Constitution, a violation of the wall separating church from state. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Good morning and welcome to The Rebellion. Thank you for listening into the show. Today's topic is the Supreme Court decision with regard to school choice. In Carson versus Macon, the Supreme Court, by a 6-3 majority, just ruled this week that you, the parents, have the right to use your money, your tax dollars, money that you've paid to the government to make a choice, that you have freedom of choice, that you can choose the school that you want those dollars to go to, and that you can choose a school that's consistent with your values, consistent with what you want your kids taught. The Supreme Court has ruled that that's a right that you have, and that the state has no right to violate that, to take your money and then tell you you can't use that money to support an education that actually inculcates in your kids the values, the ideas, the virtues, the moral character that you hold dear. That's the issue today. Do you have the right to choose a school for your kids that's consistent with what you believe and what you hold to be important? Or does the state have the right to tell you, no, you can't use your money to pay for a school that you agree with. You have to send your kids to a school that is diametrically opposed to your worldview. That's really what's in play right now. It's an issue of school choice, and even conservatives are divided on this. So that's what I want to talk about today, and we'll talk about it in the context of Sotomayor's objection to the majority ruling in this case, where the court rightly found in favor of the parents' right to choose an education that's consistent with their family values, their personal moral system, their worldview. They want to choose a school that teaches things rightly rather than wrongly, and that they shouldn't be discriminated against because they hold something to be important. Uh, you know, for example, the Ten Commandments, that you think the a law against murder is grounded in Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments, as our Supreme Court itself apparently has believed for centuries because in the freeze work, in the architecture of the Supreme Court chamber itself, it has an image of Moses centered in that freeze work, holding up the tablets, the Ten Commandments, as the context, the basis for the law that the Supreme Court seeks to uphold on a daily basis and the decisions that it makes. 
So even the Supreme Court itself acknowledges, or at least it has historically, that there has to be a context for law. And the context here in the United States has been Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, the book that's quoted more often in the seminal works of the United States of America during our founding era than any other book. As I've said on previous shows, more than Montesquieu, Locke, Hume, Hobbes, the list goes on and on, Plato, Aristotle, more than any of the classics, the book of Deuteronomy and the author of that book, Moses, is quoted more often than any other. Why? Because American jurisprudence is grounded in that book, the book of Deuteronomy, in that worldview. So if you want to send your kids to a school that believes what I just said and teaches what I just said and upholds what I just said, and that is a moral society, a just society, a society that holds human dignity as a first thing, a society that believes in facts rather than feelings, a society that argues that it's illogical and irrational to assume that man just sprung up by happenstance and chance and that design implies a designer. If you want to send your kids to a school that will discuss the ideas that I'm sharing with you right now, do you have the right to do that or should the government restrict you and say, no, you can't use your money, your tax dollars to pay for such a school? You got to get those Ten Commandments out of there. Ironic, isn't it, that the Supreme Court extolling those Ten Commandments in its own architecture and its own history would even consider restricting you from teaching the same to your kids. Well, the Supreme Court rightly, by a majority of six to three, decided that, yeah, you should be able to use your money to send your kids to a school that's consistent with your worldview. Actually wants to talk about these things historically, rationally, morally, theologically, judiciously. You have the right to do that. Sotomayor objected and said this is a violation of the separation of the wall of church and state. Well, let's take a break, and when I get back, I'm going to go through the history, the time frame, the timeline of that whole thing, the separation of church and state, this wall of separation. Where did it come from? Is it in our Constitution? Why do we talk about it all the time? And why is it the first reaction in the minority dissent led by Sotomayor against this this freedom, this freedom to choose that the Supreme Court has just acknowledged that you and I have in how to educate our children. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion. Let's take a break, and I'll be right back in a couple minutes. Okay, welcome back to The Rebellion. So the, the topic at hand right now is the victory of school choice. The Supreme Court of the United States of America just heard and resolved the case of Carson versus Macon. That's the official designation of this case in question. It was a 6-3 ruling, and the court held that to exclude, and I'm quoting right now, to exclude religious persons from the enjoyment of public benefits on the basis of their anticipated religious use of those benefits violates the federal constitution right to the free exercise of religion. Okay, that's what Justice Roberts in the majority said. To exclude religious persons, Christians or otherwise, from public benefits, in other words, 
benefits a program that's funded by tax dollars, dollars that come from you in the first place, I might add, to exclude you from the benefit of those programs that you've paid for via your tax dollars on the basis of your anticipated religious use of those dollars that came from you in the first place, Roberts rightfully said that that's a violation of your constitutional right to the free exercise of your religion. Okay, that's, that's what just took place. So, context here. The question before the Supreme Court was this, whether or not Maine, the state of Maine, could set up a school choice program that included private schools, which they had. They had a school choice program where your tax dollars could follow your student to the school of your choice, a private school, except they excluded schools that promote the faith or belief system, which is associated with and or presents the material taught through the lens of faith, quote unquote. So that's what Maine was prohibiting. You couldn't use your school choice dollars to pay for a school that promoted faith or belief system or presented material taught through the lens of faith. So in other words, what Maine was excluding in its school choice program was your right to choose a school that was quote-unquote religious, a school that grounded its worldview in Moses, okay, grounded its worldview in the, in the, in the very things that the Supreme Court of the United States and our, our Constitution argues it's grounded in. It, 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 you can't make this stuff up. So the reason Maine has this law is why a lot of states that are rural, predominantly rural, have school choices right now. They recognize that public high schools or public schools in general don't exist in many of the, um, the rural communities. They're, they're too remote. So they gave parents the right to choose to send their kids to a private school in these rural communities, or otherwise for that matter, because the state had not adequately provided for education in those communities. But they prohibited. They prohibited anybody using those dollars for that public, uh, for, for that school choice program um, if the schools were sectarian. Sectarian meaning religious. Predominantly, they're saying you can't uh, send your kids to a Christian school. Now, you could argue that other religious schools are involved there, too, a Muslim school, um, a Baha'i school. Um, I don't know. You, you, you fill in the blank in what other, whatever other religion, Hindu school, uh, Jewish school. They're basically saying all religious schools. But you and I both know, we all know, that what this is really targeting is Christian schools. Because there are a lot of small Christian schools that are very inexpensive that pop up in those rural communities. I went to one myself when I was a high school kid. Very inexpensive, small schools that do a good job for a lot less money than we're spending on our public schools. And that's what's happening in Maine. So the schools that were being um, discriminated against in this law uh, were schools that had a Christian worldview. And those people that were filing suit against these schools and against the parents that were choosing to use their money, school choice money, to send their kids to these Christian schools, Christian worldview schools, these schools were being accused of being discriminatory against homosexuals and transgenders and non-Christians. 
Um, that's the claim. So Maine's disallowance, that's what they're doing here. They're disallowing. They're saying you can't send your kids to these secular schools. It, it, it's, it's a blatant uh, disregard for the constitutional rights of these parents and these kids. And Roberts rightly condemns this in his, in his writing for the majority. He says this, impartially, he says more than this. But this he says, uh, we, the court, have repeatedly held that a state violates the free exercise clause when it excludes religious observers from otherwise available public benefits. A state's anti-establishment interest does not justify enactments that exclude some members of the community from an otherwise generally available benefit because of their religious exercise. So if there's a benefit out there, such as Social Security, what he's saying is that you can't be denied the use of that benefit just because you're a Christian. I mean, how would you feel about that if you were told that the only way you can receive and use these Social Security dollars that you've paid into for the course of your entire working life is if you use those dollars at a non-sectarian establishment. You can't you can't take those dollars and tithe them to your church, for example, because you're now choosing to use those dollars in a sectarian way, in an unacceptable way. That's essentially what the minority, Sotomayor and the rest, are trying to tell you to do. You can't, you can't use your money in a way that you see fit. The benefit of Social Security is restricted to only secular expenditures. And if you're going to spend it on something religious... Christian or otherwise, then, then we're going to withhold the money. You can't, you can't have it. That's essentially the argument here. Now, Sotomayor comes out and says this, Today the court leads us to a place where the separation of church and state becomes a constitutional violation. So she's saying that, I mean, she's twisting this upside down. She's saying that um, it's a constitutional violation to continue to separate the church from the state. Well, is the, here's the question. Uh, by the way, she goes on and she says, uh, the majority is dismantling the wall of separation between church and state that the framers fought to build. So what is the, what's the context here? What's the context for the separation of church and state? What's the timeline? We hear about it all the time. Well, I'm going to go through it very quickly with you right now, and I want you to listen to me. It starts in 1776, and that's when Thomas Jefferson set the cornerstone for our constitutional republic, okay? The, the Constitution is grounded in what? The Declaration of Independence. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson is one of the authors of the Declaration of Independence, carved these words essentially into the stone, the cornerstone of our constitutional republic. And what are these words? We are created, we are equal, and we are endowed by God, our creator, not government, with certain and specific unalienable rights. Now, what's unalienable mean? It means incontrovertible, indisputable, undeniable rights. And what are those rights? You know them. Foremost among these rights that Thomas Jefferson etched into the cornerstone of our constitutional republic are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So it starts in 1776. That's the timeline for this wall of separation of church and state. Now, you'll notice that there was nothing in what I just said that talks about a wall separating 
the church from the state. He didn't say that. Jefferson did not say that in the Declaration of Independence, and frankly, it wasn't put in the Constitution that followed thereafter. The words that are important for us to remember here are, we're created, we are equal, and we are endowed by our Creator, God, not government, with certain and specific unalienable rights. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, just go a few years into the, into the future here, from 1776 to 1791. Now we've got James Madison. He's the author of the First Amendment. Did you know that? He wrote it. Now, what does the First Amendment say? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That's it. Okay? Madison knew that the essential and first right of human beings, of mankind, was to pursue meaning, okay, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of meaning, and he knew that this was the business of the church and that of your individual conscience. So when you pursue happiness, as opposed to haplessness, when you pursue meaning as a human being, what is the entity that historically has helped you pursue that? The church, as well as your individual conscience. It's not the business of the king or the courts or of Congress. The first thing is your top priority of pursuing meaning, and this is the business of the church. Madison's argument here is pretty clear. The federal government should never presume to define the matters of the church. It should never pretend to establish, okay, the anti-establishment clause, or dictate, or define, or contradict, or contravene religious belief. It's not the government's business. It's the right and responsibility of the church and you as an individual. It's your business, not the government's. The government should never presume to prohibit any citizen's free expression of their faith. So in other words, what Madison was talking about here is this. Religion is not merely some secondary matter relegated to your private life. It's a public priority of your personal values and your corporate morals and something that all people live out on a daily basis in the market square of life. It's not the government's business. That's what Madison was saying. It's not Congress's business. Congress should leave the church alone and its parishioners alone, and never presume to tell the people what to believe or how to or how not to practice their faith. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Now, so we started with 1776, and then I moved to 1791, James Madison's authorship of the First Amendment. Now, 11 years later, okay, after that, Jefferson is in the mix again, and he's now finding it necessary because to reassure a small group of Christians up in the Northeast, not in Maine this time, but Danbury, Connecticut, a Baptist church there, he needed to assure them that they didn't need to fear any government intrusion into the church. And he said this to them in a letter, not in the Constitution, not in the Declaration of Independence. He said this in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Church. Here's what he said. I contemplate with utmost reverence that act 
which declared that the legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free expression thereof. And then he concluded, after summarizing the First Amendment that Madison wrote 11 years earlier, he said this, Thus, we are building a wall of separation between the church and state. So it's unmistakable what Jefferson is saying here. He's telling this this church, he's talking to the church right now, a group of conservative Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, who are worried about government intrusion into their affairs. Jefferson's saying, don't worry about it. There's a wall protecting you, the church, and you, the parishioners of the church, from the state. And no government, no government should ever presume to breach that wall. That's what Jefferson is saying. The wall was not erected as a prison for the church, but rather as a fortress. There's a key distinction here, prison or fortress. The wall that Jefferson was talking about exists to protect the church, not to confine it. Jefferson no more intended this wall to restrain the church than he intended the walls of his own home to restrain him. A, a house has a door, and you use it to come and go, and you engage culture, you do your civic duty, you go to work. That's, that's what the walls of your home allow you to do. You go through the door, you go out, and you go about your business in daily life. You go shopping, you go to work, you go to church, you go to the town square, you debate, whatever, okay? So as the house has a door whereby you come and go, Jefferson's wall of separation between church and state, Jefferson's wall had a door whereby the church entered into society and did its good work. Okay, the the key here is this. The church holds the key. Not Congress, not the courts, the church holds the key to its door that's in its wall. The door is locked from the inside. It's not locked from the outside. Jefferson is telling those concerned Baptists in Danbury, Connecticut, that this wall was built for the church's benefit, not for the government's. Education shares a similar history, a veneration of the church that Jefferson is basically acknowledging here as he venerates and acknowledges the the freedom that the church in Danbury, Connecticut has and that has been guaranteed to it by by our Constitution, by God himself, really. Education has the same history of being grounded in the church. Harvard's founding charter, I've told you this before, called to lay Christ at the bottom as the foundation of all learning. Brown University declared in God we hope. Northwestern's shield, Northwestern University's shield still bears the inscription of Philippians. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are right and noble. The University of California's motto is fiat lux. What does that mean? It means let there be light. That's an expression that comes from Genesis. I mean, I could go on and on. Hundreds of universities across the land in the United States and even back into Europe are grounded in a biblical worldview. This worldview that Sotomayor thinks should be taken off the table when you're given the choice as to where to send your kids. The university that I ran, Oklahoma Wesleyan University, we stood unapologetically for this tradition of grounding education in the eternal time-tested truths of God. 
I don't apologize for that. If you disagree with those time-tested truths, then bring it on. Let's debate it because we're going to pursue truth with a capital T. We're going to acknowledge the primacy of Christ, that he said he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. I'm not going to tell you you can't enroll if you don't believe that, but I'm not going to water that down as the premise, the foundation upon which we base our education. If you think you've got a better idea, bring it on. But uh, you know, several thousand years of history has proven that that idea seems to be pretty solid and that we should practice our lives on a daily basis, practice the wisdom that comes from such a worldview as the context for a free society. That's what we taught at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. But today we live in this time of great reversals. Darkness has become light and light has become darkness. Bitter has become sweet. Sweet has become bitter. Lies are presented as truth and truth is disparaged as a lie. Laws replace liberty and liberty is mocked. Happiness, it now seems, is akin or synonymous with haplessness, meaninglessness. We, because we've lost the clarity and conviction, we're now mired in this confusion and this contradiction that you're hearing coming out of Sotomayor as she objects to a ruling that gives you, a citizen of the United States, the right to choose what you're going to do with the dollars that you have given via your taxes in the first place. Oh, you can use those dollars for anything except what we tell you. You can't use them for is basically what Sotomayor is saying here. And if it applies to education, it's going to apply to hospitals. It's going to apply to any and other public benefit that comes from public resources, which is just another way of saying we're going to steal your money. We're going to label it something other than your own. And then we're, we're going to restrict you and tell you that there's only a given way that you can use that money when we give a percentage of it back to you. This is not right. This is stealing, and it's bigotry. It's religious bigotry. It's bigotry against religion. It's grounded in a bias against people that share a different faith than your own. Because Sotomayor has a faith. I mean, my land, she thinks that uh, LGBTQIA, SJW, BLM, CRT, all of those arguments that she would support, ideologies that she would ground her decisions in, are matters of faith, just as much as my faith in Christianity. I mean, you can't deny the science of biology and physiology and argue that a woman is not real and that a, a child just seconds before he is born is not a human being. You can't deny those scientific facts and claim that you're somehow a secularist. Her wor worldview is grounded in religion, too. It's just not a good one, in my view. I disagree with it. And I don't want to send my kids to a school that teaches her false religion. And if she doesn't want to send her kids to a school that teaches Orthodox Christianity, then fine. But the federal government should stay out of it. The wall of separation protects me from that. It doesn't protect the government from the church. It protects the church from the government. I'm Dr. Everett Piper, and this is The Rebellion.